You're in the right place if you're looking to learn about the latest innovations in energy and power or find out what is in the works to build a sustainable energy future. For more than 100 years, Cummins has committed itself to producing the cleanest, most advanced engines and power systems. Now Cummins is also committed to helping people like you learn more about emerging energy technologies. This is Brightest Bulbs. Today in our first episode, we will focus on one of the key drivers behind energy and power technologies, decarbonization. Today is all about carbon. We will understand more in depth why the focus on carbon and explore some of the exciting technologies that decarbonize the electricity we all use every day. This is Thomas Hillick, host of Brightest Bulbs podcast and webinar. Srikant Balasubramaniam and Jeff Wiltrot are joining our conversation today. For our listeners, we will extract insights from the gentleman's decades-long experience in business strategy, segment leadership, and product management within the energy and power sector. Thank you, Sikhan and Jeff, for joining today. Exciting to have you on this first episode of our podcast. Let's start with a lighter question to get to know you better. What is the one thing you're most proud of you have accomplished before age 18 or 21. Jeff, do you want to go ahead? Yes, thanks, Thomas, and, and thanks for having me. For me, I'm most proud of using a summer job I had working at a go-kart track to first meet and then begin dating a woman who would eventually become my wife. So I'm thankful for that every day. Interesting. Let me stop here before it gets too private. Srikant, what about you? Thanks. Thanks, Thomas. It's a real pleasure to join you and uh, Jeff in the discussion today. Um, yeah, for me uh, personally, at, at a very early age, it was instilled in me that education uh, was incredibly important. Uh, so I put all my energy in, into school and uh, was fortunate to graduate at the top of my class in college. So I was a very satisfying moment for me, but more importantly, it made my family proud and uh, Uh, so that was that is something uh, that I'll always remember for the rest of my life. Dating, education, two wonderful topics. But let's dive into business. We have an exciting topic to cover today. Let's start with some of the basics. Greenhouse gases, carbon, methane, lots of words we used to hear together when it comes to environmental sustainability. How could our listeners think of these in relation to each other, Jeff? Sure. So first, let's just make sure we're all clear on, on what the term greenhouse gases means. At its simplest, that term is used to describe gases that trap heat in the atmosphere. And the name greenhouse does, in fact, come from the greenhouses where farmers grow their fruits and vegetables. The concept is very similar. So in a farmer's greenhouse, the building is covered with glass such that it lets in sunlight and then prevents the heat from escaping. And in doing so, it, it keeps the fruits and vegetables at the optimum temperature, despite whatever conditions are happening outside. Greenhouse gases work the same way. They let sunlight reach Earth, but then they trap that heat in the atmosphere and prevent it from dissipating back, back out. It's important to note that many living species, including humans, require these greenhouse gases to survive. However, as well, with all things, there is a balance, and, and too much can have harmful consequences. In this context, Too many greenhouse gases could trap excessive heat in our atmosphere, impacting the climate and, and, of course, changing our living conditions. Greenhouse gases is a bit of a generic term. There are several of them. The ones you hear most about are gases like carbon dioxide, methane, 
and nitrous dioxide. Many people wonder, what about carbon specifically? Why do you think we hear carbon or carbon dioxide more often than the others? Yeah, um, so as Jeff mentioned, greenhouse gases are largely about carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. But the spotlight is typically on carbon dioxide, and there's, there's quite a few reasons for that. Uh, first of all, carbon dioxide is in abundance. So when you think about greenhouse gases, about 80% of human-made greenhouse gas emissions is carbon dioxide. Methane is the second most emit emitted greenhouse gas and, and constitutes about 10%. And, and to put it uh, more specifically in numbers, in 2019, the global carbon dioxide emissions, both from fossil fuel and net land use, was about 42.9 gigatons of carbon dioxide. That is a lot of carbon dioxide that's being emitted into, into the atmosphere. The second factor is the way carbon dioxide absorbs heat and releases it over time. The, the carbon dioxide molecule absorbs infrared radiation from, from the sun, vibrates, and gives up the extra energy by re-emitting those radiations. And it is this property that causes the heat-trapping nature of carbon dioxide. And it's also estimated that carbon dioxide is responsible for about two-thirds of the global energy imbalance that is causing the Earth's temperature to rise. The other uh, aspect to consider is also how long carbon dioxide remains in the atmosphere. It actually remains much longer than others. For example, methane that is emitted into the atmosphere usually lasts for about a decade. Nitrous oxide is, that is emitted usually lasts for about a century. While carbon dioxide, is, by some estimates, could be in the atmosphere for nearly 300 to 1,000 years. So a long time after it is uh, originally emitted. So it is the, the abundance and the longevity of CO2 that actually makes it one of the most important gases to talk about when we think of carbon or greenhouse gas emissions. The other thing we hear often nowadays about carbon is all the terms around decarbonization. Carbon neutral, carbon zero, carbon negative. On LinkedIn, I run a group about corporate renewable energy sourcing. Almost every week, companies announce their intentions to achieve one of these in the next 10 or 20 years. Microsoft recently announced their progress on becoming carbon negative by 2030. How different are these terms actually, Jeff? Yeah, I'd agree, Thomas. I mean, it's exciting. It's energizing to hear increasing number of companies articulate these decarbonization goals and objectives. We at Cummins are one of those companies. We've said eight environmental sustainability goals, one of which is to reduce our own absolute greenhouse gas emissions from, from our facilities and operations by 50% by 2030. But you're also right in that not all of these terms mean the same thing. And, and so it's important for us to get grounded in exactly what these, these terms actually mean. I think the first to understand is carbon neutrality, which is the one you hear a lot about as it is the easiest to achieve in many cases. With carbon neutrality, the company or operation still emits carbon, but then they take other actions to offset their emissions and remove an equivalent amount of carbon from the atmosphere. So the, the company may take actions like planting trees, deploying carbon capture or carbon removal technologies, buying carbon credits, or other such actions that enable them to offset the carbon they're emitting from their base operations. The next term to understand is carbon-free or carbon zero. In this case, the company or the operation 
deploys technology or takes other actions such that there are no carbon emissions to begin with. So they're preventing the emission of carbon and thus they have no need to offset or neutralize those emissions. Lastly, then let's define carbon negative, which can be the most difficult to achieve. In, in this case, the operation or the company is actually removing more carbon than it's emitting either through technology deployment or, or some other activity, such that it actually ends up being a negative, having a negative carbon impact on the environment. Let's switch towards where carbon is coming from in terms of human activities. We know that transportation and electricity production are the two areas. Humankind generates the majority of CO2, about two thirds of total CO2 emissions. The other third comes from industrial, residential and commercial activity. When we think of all these carbon producing areas, I mean transportation, electricity production and industrial activity. Those are also the elements of growing wealth, increasing GDP across the world. Does this mean increasing wealth results in higher carbon emissions? And secondarily, Does this mean decarbonizing could cause a plateau in wealth or GDP growth? Jeff? Yeah, so first let's look at your first question and, and evaluate the linkage you described. So when we lay out GDP growth going back over several decades to, to the 1950s, and how that's grown over the last 70 years to today, you do see high correlation between that GDP growth and electricity consumption. And this makes sense. Increasing GDP means increasing economic activity, increasing individual wealth. And of course, that drives companies and individuals to buy and use equipment and appliances, which of course drive electricity consumption and electricity generation. So yes, GDP growth drives electricity consumption over the past 70 years. And secondly, then there is a linkage to that increasing electricity consumption to increasing CO2 emissions based on the fact that a large proportion of our electricity generation has come from fossil fuel sources, that, that correlation has been significant such that as we as a society increase our electricity usage, we also increase CO2 emissions. So the question now becomes, can we reduce or stem the increase in CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions while also not stifling the GDP growth and all the associated benefits that come from that? This is, of course, the challenge we face. And I personally think it is achievable. When we think about the technology that we at Cummins and other companies across the industry are working on, they are all about enabling a path towards decarbonization that allows us to achieve these mutual goals of driving economic growth while also reducing GHG emissions. So effectively, working to break that linkage between GDP growth and CO2 emissions. It's really interesting how these three, GDP, electricity usage, and carbon emissions correlate with each other. Going back to transportation and electricity generation, making up about two-thirds of CO2 generated by humans. I've recently seen this excellent insight from McKinsey that we, humankind, will be consuming twice as much electricity in the next 30 years. Obviously, the risk is that we could also emit twice as much CO2, add more heat absorbing and radiating greenhouse gases, and eventually increase the temperature on Earth, making it more dangerous for ourselves. And then there is this whole trend towards electrification. 
not just cars or vehicles, but also buildings, industries, and so on. This brings up the key questions, Rikant. What is the path towards decarbonization? Yeah, it's a pretty eye-opening insight that the amount of electricity consumed will essentially double over the next 30 years, and both from increasing household incomes and thereby consumption, but also about a billion additional people will have access to electricity by 2030. Now, I think, so it's important to talk about the final destination, but also the path to get there. I think most of us would agree that renewables are the final destination when it comes to electricity generation and decarbonization. It's abundant and it is carbon free. The challenge, of course, is how do we get there from where we are today? Today, although we've made good progress in renewables, we're still not close to the final destination. Just to uh, give you a sense, uh, the International Energy Agency estimates that 60% of electricity generation globally is from fossil fuel. About 30% is from renewables, and this is a mix of uh, hydroelectric as well as wind and solar. And the rest, about 10%, is from nuclear. Now, the encouraging part is investments in renewables are continuing to grow at a rapid rate, while fossil fuel investments, specifically coal, continue to decline. So we have the final destination, renewables. And we are currently at a stage where about a third of our electricity is coming from renewables. I want to ask you about the path towards the future. But before that, what do you think will be driving the urge to move? To which extent do we have to rely on regulation in this journey, Srikant? Yeah, this is a very interesting uh, question and and a very interesting dynamic. Uh, We at Cummins, as well as more broadly the industry, are quite uh, familiar with navigating emissions regulations. Uh, Just to give you an example, in North America, EPA, uh, mobile off-highway emissions, uh, transition from what is known as Tier 1 emissions all the way to Tier 4 final emissions, and over a 15-year period of time. And during that period of time, oxides of nitrogen, particulate matter, were reduced by anywhere from 90 to 95%. So we are familiar with this uh, this journey. And this led to a lot of certainly emissions technology development across the industry. However, when we think about moving forward, I think the situation will be different. I expect that regulations won't be the, the uh, just the primary driver towards decarbonization, especially when it comes to electricity generation. Instead, I believe that societal awareness is going to be much higher, and this societal awareness will even trans- translate into societal pressure and economic impact, and that will become the primary drivers for decarbonization. And this societal pressure will come not just from customers, but also from the communities in which companies operate, as well as the shareholders. And you're already starting to see some of this today, as, as we were talking earlier, so the large technology giants whether it's Google, Microsoft, or Amazon, have already announced decarbonization goals over the next several decades. Major mining companies across the globe have, have committed to decarbonization goals, and we at Cummins have, have as well. So you're already starting to see that it is not just about regulations, but a much more broad, broader That makes sense, Srikant. Going back to the path towards the final destination, It is still lots of time from now to 2050, and even then, we will still be using a mix of fossil fuels and renewables to generate electricity. Jeff, 
What does the path towards that final destination of renewables look like? Yeah, you're right that while the end goal and the final destination is becoming increasingly clear, especially based on some of those statements we made, we alluded to earlier from, from companies like ourselves and Microsoft, the path there is, is not always 100% clear. But I think there's a couple key things that we can be certain of. One is that technological diversity will definitely be a key aspect of this journey. We as a company and we as industry and we as a society are going to need to invest in, test in, and deploy a range of different technologies on the path towards decarbonization. Examples of these may be things like ultra-low emission diesel engines. You may see technologies deployed like energy storage and fuel cells and things like that. And then there's also consideration of using a range of different fuels, such as natural gas and hydrogen. But bringing together a breadth of different potential technology solutions will be critical to making progress along this path. The second piece that I think is important to understand that will be part of this is a term that we refer to as distributed generation. In, in, in our vernacular, what this means is, is the ability to take all of these diverse technological options and to bring them together in a way that obviously delivers the power and the energy that, that the customer or the user needs, does so economically, does so reliably, and also does so in a way that moves towards a decarbonized, a decarbonized future. So you can see the, the reflection of these trends in our own business direction. We have, as Cummins, actively pursued investments across the range of technology solutions I articulated earlier. In addition, we're really working to be able to put together these various technology options in a way that serves the customer needs in terms of both delivering their requirements as well and doing so economically and doing so in a way that is cleaner for the environment. Interesting, Jeff. Let's start with distributed generation. How does it come to the picture in terms of the path towards a decarbonized world, Srikant? Yeah, to, to understand that, you know, it's probably helpful to just step back and look at how electricity generation has happened, you know, really for the past century or so. For, for nearly you know, the first 80 plus years, electricity generation was largely centralized generation and it was a, was a highly regulated market. What, what do we mean by centralized generation? So essentially there are these large thermal uh, nuclear or hydroelectric plants that generate electricity. Then they are transmitted on transmission across transmission lines for hundreds and thousands of miles. And then they get to their local utility company where it is then distributed to customers at the point of use. Now, you look at what's happened in the last 20 years, while we certainly centralized generation has continued to dominate, there's been more and more regulation. And what is interesting is, particularly in the last three to five years, we have not only seen the continuing trend of deregulation, but also distributed generation is starting to take hold. Now, distributed generation is really an interconnected ecosystem of smaller power generation systems that are close to the point of consumption. And this proximity to the consumption allows distributed generation systems to help reduce costs, complexity, and the inefficiencies associated with transmission and distribution. The, the more important factor, of course, is that distributed generation also, also offers the benefit of reducing emissions through integration of renewable sources along with existing energy assets. And all of this helps reduce the emissions while also improving the asset utilization. Let me summarize. 
The role of distributed generation in decarbonizing the world is to integrate renewables and other low-carbon electricity generation sources into our network. Jeff, what about the fuel side? It seems like we will be relying on different fuels for the next couple of decades, even after all the increasing investments into renewables, distributed generation and energy storage. Yeah, and this is where alternative fuels like hydrogen and natural gas come into play. First, let's make sure we reset ourselves in terms of the current uh, fossil fuels that comprise most of our electricity generation. Right now, coal takes the lead in terms of, of the fuel that produces most of our electricity, accounting for about 38% of global electricity generation. The good news is that between now and 2040, the world is not forecast to add additional incremental coal capacity. In other words, we're right now producing about 10,000 terawatts of electricity from coal, and that is forecast to remain about the same through 2040. Keep in mind that this is while we almost double the amount of electricity we consume as a society. What is supplementing that growth in electricity consumption is a turn towards natural gas to generate more and more electricity. Natural gas is forecasted to increase by 45 to 50% of the fuel to generate electricity during that same time period. Lastly then, hydrogen has emerged as a potential key solution in the transition to zero emission mobility and zero emission electricity generation. One current challenge with hydrogen, as with many new technologies, is cost, both upfront costs as well as operational costs. While we expect these costs to come down as we see increased over adoption over time, Government support and regulation to incentivize its investment will also be a pretty important factor in how this technology gets adopted. We at Cummins are, are already using hydrogen technologies to power a wide variety of applications, both in the mobility sector, things like transit buses and semi-trucks, as well as in the industrial and off-highway segment, as in places like passenger trains and in power generation. And this becomes a really important and impactful area for how hydrogen play into the energy mix in the medium to long term. Great. All the puzzle pieces are coming together. Just to wrap up this episode for our listeners. Today we've talked all about carbon. We've covered the reasoning behind the focus on carbon and how transportation and electricity generation are two large components of carbon emissions. We have wrapped up the episode with some of the technologies and fuels behind decarbonizing electricity generation. Thank you, Srikan and Jeff, for joining today's episode. It was exciting to discuss with you about the journey of decarbonization. For listeners that are interested to learn more about energy innovations, any resources you would suggest them, Srikant? Yeah, uh, thanks, Thomas. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation as well. Uh, yeah, there are there's lots of resources available on the web, and, and I'll mention a few that uh, uh, certainly, the EPA and the International Energy Agency have uh, plenty of uh, resources available on, the, on their website. The, the UN Environmental Program is another uh, terrific source. One I, I particularly have started liking lately is called United in Science. Uh, it's compiled by the World Meteorological Organization under the direction of the UN. And then if you're looking for something a little bit more introductory, something I found to be pretty helpful is the uh, USC's Calgary's energy education uh, website as well. So those are some things that come to my mind and I'm sure there's a host of others that are available if you just search search them on the web. Great. 
Jeff, do you want to add something? Yeah, and, and the only couple that I'd add to, to three counselors were, one, I find it quite insightful to look into the annual reports and some of the writing done by utility companies and by some of the, the national utility operators, both in the United States and, and abroad, and especially in Europe, who, while they may provi be providing a little bit more technical depth, they also provide a, a balanced view of the benefits towards decarbonization, as well as some of the operational challenges and realities on the path to getting there. And then the second one for me is to look at groups like the Eurasia Group, who include climate change across a range of things that are happening in the world that are driving economic, social, and, and political changes over the coming years. And so they integrate this notion of climate change and decarbonization into a broader context of, of where the world's headed, which I find quite enlightening. In addition to Srikant and Jeff's suggestions, be sure to visit commons.com slash podcast to find other episodes and more resources. Thanks everyone for joining us today for Brightest Bulbs. Our next episode will be about the bright spots. We look at a few emerging energy and power technologies that more of us will be talking about in the next decade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.